0: Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. The global pandemic of 2020 and the social justice movement have spotlighted economic inequality and poverty in America. Believing we could create change at a personal level too, first-time author Jennifer Risher hopes We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth published by Red Hen Press and out now, becomes a catalyst for conversations that helps us learn from one another and shakes up the status quo. In 1991, Richard took a job at Microsoft, and quite frankly, got very lucky. She met her husband, David, and their stock options that they were both granted were worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if you're not a believer in lightning striking twice, then wait till you hear the next part. As six years later, David joined a small unknown startup where they were selling books and throwing them in boxes and just shipping them out. Well, obviously that was amazon.com. So I think you understand the rest of the story, how they both kind of got lucky again, and were in their early 30s, and quite frankly, had more money than they could even wrap their heads around. Now, I know many of you listening out there are thinking, oh, come on, Mitch, it's easy street time. Why would anybody be writing a book about it? But in telling this personal story, Jennifer has helped start conversations, connected us in our common humanity, and really shaken up the status quo. So today and Financially Speaking, we're going to take a dive into a world few of us truly know, understand, or could even imagine, as we welcome to the microphones, Jennifer Risher. Hi, Jen. How are you?
1: Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you, Mitch. Nice to be here.
0: Thank you. So I always you know, have no choice but to start my shows here in 2020 and, and make sure that you and your family are well and safe and found kind of a way to thrive, not just survive this brutal year.
1: Thank you. Thanks for asking. Yes, we are doing fine. Actually, our silver lining was that we had a daughter come home from college and spend six months with us. So that's time we never would have had with her if it weren't for the pandemic. So we right. feel fortunate in that respect. S-
0: same here, I absolutely understand that. And I, I, it goes a long way. That is the silver lining. So the show is about stories and everyone has their first story. So maybe take us from your days growing up, I believe outside Seattle. Did you have a financially comfortable childhood?
1: You know, I, we all have a money story and it does begin in childhood and yes, My mom was a librarian and she worked until I was born. My dad worked in insurance and I grew up saving my pennies, middle-class values, sort of wary of the rich. We came around the dinner table and enjoyed each other's company. I knew it was important to read, to turn off the lights as I was leaving a room and put on a sweater when the house felt cold. We had leftovers the next day. So I learned early on the importance of frugality, of not being wasteful, and that has stuck with me, those mm-hmm. values.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I, and I read in your book, that I think you're are both your folks from Michigan originally so
1: my mother grew up in michigan her right. her dad was a prominent lawyer and her mom was on the board of the hospital and they were very involved in you know theater group and bridge club and they kind of kept up appearances and my my dad grew up he was one of five children his father had dropped out of school in 8th grade to work and his mom was a second grade teacher and the family didn't have much money so my dad remembers, you know, rushing to the dinner table trying to get enough food because he wasn't sure if there would be enough food. So mm. he kind of grew up kind of always a little bit worried about having enough.
0: Mm. That's interesting. We we were actually just in Michigan. My wife's family is uh, from outside uh, Detroit, West Bloomfield, and we kind of rescued my mother-in-law, went up to Charlevoix, which I'm sure you know, up in northern Michigan and rented a, a home on the lake just to kind of get out of here for a 13-hour mm-hmm. drive, but it was it was well worth it. But I actually interviewed my mother-in-law during uh, the time we were there. We did some videos, but my wife was asking her questions, and it's interesting because she was telling exactly the same story about her parents and what it was like growing up, and you know what they went through. And um, you know, it's it's uh, it's not obviously just a Midwestern story, but it is is something that people people have dealt with. And I also wanted to ask you if anyone taught you about money at home or school or even discuss it. Was money money typically is not a dinner table conversation at least fifty years ago or a hundred years ago or even five years ago really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's true. Yeah. No, in our house when I was growing up, money was impolite to discuss. And in fact I remember asking my mom, you know, how much does dad make? That was not my business that was none of my business so that was not an okay question even if when we you know on the on the special occasion when we went out for dinner i wasn't supposed to look at the check i mean that was my dad's domain he was going to pay and it was very unladylike to even you know peek at the the check or or talk about money Um, my dad did teach me the importance of saving and of putting money in the bank but any other conversation around money really was sort of a taboo
0: Well, that's not surprising. You know, throughout my career as a financial advisor, I've really made financial literacy a mission in my life, being on the Board of Education and also in my advisory practice. And I know that roughly 70% of people would rather talk about their weight before money. I also know that at least in my generation, people grew up in what my good friend and, and best selling author Neil Godfrey calls the Donna Reed generation, where mom was vacuuming wearing pearls and dad would come home at six, you know, have a drink ready, put on the slippers, and everyone sat down for dinner, you know, kind of the Don Draper madman, except he would always come home late, but in general, the uh, the father knows best. Nobody talked about money. In fact, in many of these houses Talking about sex was actually okay. Money, not so okay. And that's why I'm so glad you wrote this book and we can have this frank conversation because it's something that's rarely talked about. Now, did your husband have a similar upbringing? What was his upbringing like?
1: So his parents got divorced when he was 7 and so he was he and his younger brother were raised primarily by their uh, single mom. And he remembers, you know, a happy childhood but he also remembers overhearing his mom on the phone begging the the day camp to take him and his brother for free because she had to go to work. So money was not part of his childhood either. Yeah, we both, we had, I mean, in in many ways, it's very fortunate that we had a similar attitude towards money because I think that's helped with our
0: relationship. Mm -hmm. One of the stories I really found really remarkable, I'd love to hear more about having to do with your husband was a banking internship. Mm -hmm. You can talk a little bit more about that because I think that kind of ties a little nice little ribbon around what we're we're discussing.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, when he was growing up, you know, he, I was talking about sort of not wanting to look at the check when it came at the end of the meal. He never went out for, for the first time he went out to a restaurant for dinner was when he was graduating from high school and his grandmother took him out to dinner. Hmm. And then, yeah, later on when he was, had an internship at Citibank that that he was doing a good job and his boss said, you know, I want to treat you, uh, go out for dinner, it's on me. And so, my husband didn't know quite what to do. It put him in an awkward situation. He wasn't sure how much he should spend. And he, he and a friend went out to a Mexican restaurant. And then when he brought the receipt to his boss, his boss looked at it and said, try again. He hadn't spent enough. I mean, he didn't know how to spend and he had to try again.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and like you, you didn't know how to spend money either. I mean, you know, exactly. this is not, this really isn't like Something a you were taught, but even in your in your in your lives, it just wasn't part of the value system of of, of It you was much or, yeah.
1: Yes, it was much more of a saving value system. So right. I you know it was about saving and being frugal and being mm-hmm. careful and managing money well. Excess and spending were kind of frowned upon.
0: Mm -hmm. And actually, we'll get more into that. But I think by having that knowledge that both of you, I think that probably helped you in so many ways going forward, you know, having experienced that and understanding and and, and being able to talk about this. So let's talk about how you came into this wealth. And, you know, let's talk about the first job at Microsoft, how you you graduated. Where did you go to school?
1: So I went to Connecticut College Mm -hmm. and graduated with a degree in art history and philosophy and really wanted to experience a different culture and thought it would be really interesting to live in Asia. And I worked in Tokyo for a couple of years and worked for a steel company teaching um, their employees English. It was a wonderful experience. Tokyo is an incredible city. You know, that was a a wonderful start to to my life after college.
0: And and I, I love that you majored in art history and philosophy, because this is something that drives me absolutely nuts. And I tried as best as I could with my kids is that, you know what, college is a time to really expand your mind and not just with beer and drugs and everything else, but I mean, really expand your mind. And I was fortunate when I was at school, I was interested in radio and television and communications, but I was taking philosophy classes and Shakespeare classes and film classes and things that, you know, I wanted to learn more about. Or things I learn nothing about. Whereas today's kids, and I deal with a lot of millennials in running a number of 401k plans for a lot of young organizations that have thousands of employees that are, you know, late mid to late twenties. You know, they're also focused about which business school they went to. And no, I, you know, I have no time. I have to, you know, continue on that track or on the marketing track, whatever, whatever the track is. And with both of my kids, my wife and I would beg them, please take just take three or four classes. And in my career, I mean, if looking back now, my God, I wish I took psychology because, you know, my job is not managing money. It's managing expectations. And it's really being a psychologist and understanding what people's needs are. And I had no training in that field Mm -hmm. and really learned on the job as best as I can. But there's so important that, you know, have that. And I think the point that's even cooler is that, there you you know there's so many parents that say you know don't waste your time with art history don't waste your time with philosophy you'll go nowhere in life well ladies and gentlemen read this book <laughs> um because that's not true so well i
1: think it- you learn to to learn by 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 exploring different uh, right
0: different and, areas. and the experience and, in tokyo too i'm sure was yeah. you know just really brought out other areas that you never would have been exposed to. So you're back and you're applying for a job at Microsoft. What year is this?
1: So I came back in 89, 1989 mm-hmm. and I and I was thinking I would move with my best friend to San Francisco, but she got this job in Seattle, so I went to Seattle and I had always wanted to work in advertising. So that was sort of my dream. How was I going to break into this industry that was Everyone wanted to work in advertising. So I joined the line. Yes. And um, I actually, so when I was talking to someone yet again, who was telling me, you know, we like you, but we just don't have a position. I said, can I work for free? And so with that offer, they said, sure, come on in. And I began working at an agency for free, learning about, the, about advertising, meeting people. And when I learned that there was, you know, through this, this process, I learned that there was an opening at the agency across the street, I ran my resume over and um, was
0: fortunate enough to get a position. And then how did that work into Microsoft.
1: So, I, yeah, and I was working as a account coordinator, and my friend who I'd moved to Seattle with, who had started this job at this computer company, called me, and I was about a year into to this advertising position. She said, you know, there's a, there's a job opening up here at Microsoft. And of course, living in Seattle, I knew that Microsoft was a great place to work and sure. full of young people, challenges, and great opportunities. And I knew that they got free drinks and there was cafeterias in every yep. building. So it was like, just this kind of wonderful place to work, but I still wanted to learn more about advertising. So I weighed the option of, you know, she was saying that there was a position in campus recruiting that was open. And I that didn't sound that appealing to me, but the idea of working at Microsoft was interesting. And maybe I could work in marketing at Microsoft eventually. So I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll interview for this position. And that that to me was sort of, you know, right place, right time. I was fortunate enough to get those interviews and get a job. And on the very day I, I started at Microsoft in orientation, I met this guy called David who, you know, asked me out over email. And I thought, that's ridiculous. I'm not dating anyone I work with. Um, but soon I learned that Microsoft's a big place and he was pretty
0: cute. So And asking you out over email was kind of a new thing in 1989, so... It
1: really was. I had never used email before.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What a great way to start. Um, But obviously, you guys um, began dating, and you both worked at Microsoft. Now, was he in the same role? I think I read in the book that he was pretty much doing the same thing you were doing at Microsoft initially?
1: Well, he joined as a product manager um, Mm -hmm. and with an MBA, so he started out at a higher level. And I, I... worked in recruiting for a couple of years. And then I too moved over into product management, but he was sort of on the fast track at Microsoft. He was doing very well. And so, you know, that was exciting, it was an exciting career for him. And yet at one point, this was, you know, I'm jumping ahead six years after we're married and we're expecting sure. our first child. And he's, you know, interested mm-hmm. in this, this online bookstore startup that, you know, some guy's starting out of his garage and, you know, I'm pregnant and we, all our friends are at Microsoft and he, you know, basically Bill Gates calls him into his office and says, leaving would be the stupidest thing you ever do. <laughs> and yet he joined this startup called Amazon.com. And Proving that again, even Bill
0: Gates can be wrong, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> <laughs> at least this time. Wow. That's a phenomenal story. And uh, how, how many years did he work at Amazon?
1: He started in '90s. Seven and was there six years, I believe?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Well, obviously, the, the growth in Amazon has, has been amazing. And obviously, from a financial standpoint, between the stock options that you both were getting at Microsoft and then all of a sudden, stock options at Amazon that there isn't even a number you can put on it, of um, uh, the growth that's happened there, certainly over the last, even just during that 10-year period, let alone this year alone, has has been amazing. So what did wealth bring at first to you? I mean, you, you say in the book that eight out of 10 wealthy people grew up poor. This had to be quite a shock to kind of your core, you know, the, you know, telling the stories about, you know, your dad having to rush to the dinner table and eat and, mm. and the values that your parents uh, embedded in you you know, especially your husband who really clearly never even went out to eat. And all of a sudden you have this money. Definitely yeah. a shock to the system.
1: It definitely is a shock to the system. Yeah. I'll be it,
0: but a shock. Eight out of
1: 10, not necessarily poor, but middle class were poor. And, and mm-hmm. you know, wealth surprised me. It, having a lot of money isn't what it looks like or feel. It, it doesn't look or feel like what Hollywood sells us.
0: Mm. So I, I think does.
1: You know, I, I, yeah, exactly. I wasn't in this big sparkly private club hanging out, you know, sharing my financial secrets. I really found myself in a very strange, silent space where even though there were all these new challenges, no one was discussing things like siblings' resentment or their worry over raising spoiled, entitled children or their own ambivalence. I mean, there were no dialogues about how or whether to give to family members, how to approach philanthropy. Even though, like you mentioned, you know, these challenges are new to most people. And it, it might be hard to imagine wealth as a challenge that needs to be overcome. And yeah, I want to say up front that yes, money makes life easier. No one needs to shed any tears over my situation. But, you know, wealth can be isolating, Normally, if I have a problem or a question, like, should my 16-year-old have a curfew? I turn to friends. I want to get their ideas and their advice, hear about their experiences. I gather. It's sort of like how I do my research. Just talking is helpful. Like, it lets me know that my question is normal and that, that it's shared. But, but the same doesn't happen with money. And, you know, I really couldn't talk to people about having a lot of it. And it, you know is you can't really time, define
0: you can't really define wealth either really i guess it, it must be a yeah. very, it's a challenging word to to really define because it means so many different things to so many different people
1: it, it quickly becomes relative and you know for me you know i think anyone who has more money than they had growing up or more money than other people in their extended family or more money than a lot of their friends We'll feel this sort of disparity and, you know, we want to be equal or or maybe we want to be a little bit better than our neighbor, but we don't want this huge gap. And it makes it challenging, you know, when you think of trying to navigate a vacation with another family that doesn't share your resources or to feel a friend's jealousy and not be able to share what's really going on in your life. Or in my case, it was painful to feel as though my parents disapproved of what we had.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So did you and your husband get your, I guess you kind of got your own education really about wealth or were you relying on professionals to, to guide you along the way? And you know, as as a financial put on my financial advisor hat, which I don't really do that often on these shows, but it it fits right here. You know, I've always developed a partnership with my clients, and as for our team, uh, we always want to educate our clients on everything from risk management to what we call wealth wealth way, which is basically liquidity, liability, and legacy, and that's just how I operate because I, I always want to be in a partnership, but not every advisor or accountant or, or everyone handles it that way. You probably had people just banging at your door. You know, people find out about wealth very quickly. People probably literally move to Seattle to be in my industry or similar industries because, you know, as the old, why do you rob banks? You go where the money is. It just kind of what what was... You don't have to get specific at all, but what, what kind of what was your take on when you started meeting people that were managing wealth or hearing from others that were managing wealth? What were some of yeah. your views and thoughts on that?
1: People weren't banging at my door. And more than figuring out, you know, financial, I mean, there was one path of like trying to find a, a good financial advisor, but that wasn't as important to me as, as the emotional side of what I was dealing with. And you know, like I said, normally, I turn to friends when I have issues, and this this didn't feel like I could do that. I, I mean, in fact, that. at that time, I was a new mom. And this curtain had lifted on parenthood, and I was amazed and Full of joy and questions around having this new baby. And it was so helpful to me to, to be part of a mother's group where everyone had the same questions, like right. how are we gonna get our kids to sleep through the night? You know, should we let them cry it out or should we have a family bed? And do you use a pacifier? And do you breastfeed? All these questions that we had in common that I could ask about, could I hear different opinions? That was all happening. And at the same time, this other curtain had lifted and i was in this world where i had so much and that world was quite silent people often say that the rich worry about people liking them only for their money you know knocking on their door this whole thing right i wasn't worried about people liking me for what i had i was worried about people hating me for it and i didn't want anyone to know hmm. so you know at that time you know i i couldn't turn to friends and Normally I, I turn to friends or I turn to books and, you know, there were no books.
0: No. People so, with money don't share information. I mean, no, until be- now, honestly, I've, I've never seen anything like this. And that's what's just so so unique about your book is because there's no one there to hold each other accountable.
1: No. You know, there really are no books like this. And so... You know, I wrote my book because my story is one I'd want to know about if it hadn't happened to me. But I also wrote my book for the millions of Americans like me. I'm telling my story to help other people understand their own. Because we have this fairy tale in our heads around wealth, the reality feels really lonely and strange. So I'm my goal is not to... Tell people how to do rich right. I don't have the answer to that. I, I'm not my story there, there not, is, not, an answer. not an answer. There is no answer to that yeah. exactly. I'm, but I, like you said, I, I'm offering up a story that hasn't been told. No. And it's one that so many people share, and I hope is so valuable. It'll help validate. It'll help demystify wealth. I hope it will help us see that we are all a lot more alike than different. Mm-hmm. And I'm also telling this story to get us talking, right? Start because the conversation. yes, you know, money is a taboo subject, but it doesn't have
0: to be. It should not be one. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, I, I go on forever about this, but one of the things I'm most proud about is it's probably about 10 years ago that my friend Neil Godfrey, who has, you know, written all these books on kids and money and was Oprah's person for years. And we got involved with the with the governor and were able to mandate financial literacy classes in all of the schools in New Jersey. To start, it's not enough, but at least start teaching these kids it's- maybe the last semester or second to last semester in high school about money basics, because the there's just nothing there. And, and we all, we all, yeah, we all figure it out on our own. We're all, you know, (laughs) putting too much money on credit cards in our twenties. We're all, you know, student debt. I mean, go on forever with all of these things, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it exists. And, you know, you use a couple of terms and one I relate to very much was I mentioned earlier, the imposter syndrome of, of, of being, for me, it was being successful in a totally different field that I'd ever planned to excel in for you was, you know, having all this money when this was not really something you never, you know, even considered. You know, you you were just focused on, I'm sure, finding a good partner, having a good family, having happiness and love and good health and, and the the basic things that all matter to all of us at the end of our days. But you talk about money shame and money guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about, about those.
1: Yeah, you know, And this is another, you know, kind of leads to our need to talk. So, you know, the more I do talk about money, the more I realize it's not money itself that we avoid talking about. It's we avoid the emotions that exist behind the money. And these emotions are universal. I mean, it doesn't matter how much you have in your bank account. If you have parents, if you have a partner, if you have friends or siblings, you know that money can be really uncomfortable to discuss. Think about it there's probably some relationship in your life right now where there's something hanging over your head some awkward money situation that both of you are avoiding and i want to invite you to get uncomfortable and to have those conversations you talk about money shame and money guilt and i do too so a lot of we're we're fearful we're afraid of hurting other people's feelings we're afraid of rejection we're afraid of not measuring up or of sounding unknowledgeable and we all have these sort of money issues and i think we think we're the only ones but if if we start to talk to each other we'll realize oh yeah you know we're all a little bit nervous around this topic that's so emotionally loaded
0: right and we all come at it from from different situations and and I remember having a, a guest on my radio show back in the 90s who wrote a book on psychology of money, men, women, and, you know, marriage and and money. And and really, you know, that was her specialty. She was a psychologist that would work with couples that were having money struggles. And one of the things I remember in that conversation is that in every relationship, pretty much there's an accelerator and there's a break. And I'll be very frank in my own relationship, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just the accelerator. That's the way I am. But I married a Michigan girl who's got a break and thank God for that, because, you know, everyone, I'm just a Jersey guy who looks at things a little differently, obviously learned a lot. But at the end of the day, every relationship, you know, whether it's husband and wife, brother and sister. But as you mentioned, friends are also a really, really challenging subject when you, you know, you live in a community where, you know. Three blocks from me, I have someone who sold a business for $70 million a few years ago. Not many people happen to know that. Someone else who just retired, who's got a tremendous amount of money, same age as me, and now has three homes. And then I have a friend four blocks away, also in a nice neighborhood, who, who you know, struggles day to day. And then plenty that are in the middle somewhere, so uh, you don't really know what's happening. And the article that you wrote in Psychology Today, which I'm going to link to for for everyone, called "Wrestling with Wealth." I thought was really really fascinating. You know, on on how becoming millionaires change your life, and basically tell the story that that you do in the in your book, especially at the same time, like you said, as as becoming becoming a mom. And, you know, I think you mentioned in that article that you couldn't really complain, but you didn't want people to hate you and you don't want to be all of a sudden the obnoxious, wealthy person. And that's not you. You have two daughters and you were, you're were you just trying to be like everyone else and raise them. But circle back to right now you raising kids in this different scenario of having wealth. So did you, I'm curious if uh, you were giving them allowances, Teaching them at an early age about charity, like, you know, there there are books on that topic. That that I happen to know, as I mentioned before, my my friend has written one of them, but actually several of them. But but how did you go at that? you know, because that's a real decision a husband and wife have to make when it comes to dealing with their kids.
1: Mm -hmm. It was a worry. And I think every parent worries about this. No one wants to raise a spoiled brat. (laughs) So we worry about spoiling our kids and, and money adds an extra layer there. You know, when you asked about allowances and there's, you know, this sort of structure, you can put, have your children put money in, you know, designate three different areas, saving, spending, and giving. And, you know, there's all these different structures on how to kind of teach your kids about money. But I am a firm believer that, you know, they're watching you. So they see what you do. So it's really important as a parent to live your values. And that means day to day, week to week, year to year, they're watching what you do. They watch, you know, you go to the grocery store and it's not just about money. It's about awareness of other people. It's about your attitude. It's about a sense of gratitude and how you move through the world. So as you're driving into the grocery store and someone cuts you off and takes your parking space, how do you react? Your kids are listening to to kind of how you react to that. And they're watching you as you go into the grocery store and you make your selections. I mean, are you... Thinking about making trade-offs, are you making choices? How do you think about you know what you're going to spend or what you're not going to spend? How do you interact with the guy at the meat counter? Are you saying thank you? Are you are you respectful when you're being checked out? You know, when you get back to the car, do you return the cart? I mean, all these things are things that your kids are are, are watching, and they know what you how you spend your day. How do you prioritize your time? You know, what do you talk about around the dinner table? What do you worry about? What, what are you proud of? These things are things that kids are listening to. So really, I feel that it's been successful for us to just, you know, lead by example and, and lead the life that we hope to see them leading. I mean, you, what do you want for your child? Do you want them to grow up to be happy and committed to, to their community and giving back and, and, and having an impact and feeling a sense of purpose? I mean really in the end, where does our happiness come from? It's those human connections. And we want them, you know, we want our girls to feel empowered as individuals and as as members of society that are making a difference in a positive way.
0: And when they when they observe their parents being charitable and doing things to help their own community and really getting a sense of what's happening, I mean, that, that spreads like wildfire to your kids. And, and you know, I, I just remember, it, I think it was Katrina, um, we had got involved with a few organizations and my daughter at the time who's now 23 and writes for people magazine was maybe six years old and she saw what we were doing and she without us even knowing called a friend and they started a lemonade stand in front of the house and you know we're raising money and using the we were using the jar system where you know some of their money was going towards charity as well as immediate needs and maybe short-term needs and things like that and and that that really rubs off and and it's really interesting because i see that so much with my kids in how important these things are but there's this other side of money that has to do with what you guys do for example the traveling and you know you you obviously travel and and, and that's there's nothing everyone travels but i think i read somewhere in the book that you know your husband was taking the amazon jet for example and you you had some concerns about you know, well, what's what's the message there? Or, or, you know, yes, we could afford to fly first class, but but if that's all they know, really, what kind of message? How do you balance yes. that?
1: yes. You know, when they were young, I mean, it's one thing to say, this is special and this is unique. And, but if kids are experiencing something, it's, it's just normal to them. So yeah, we, I wanted, I mean, it's already a benefit and a privilege to be able to fly and to travel. So it you know we went to the airport we stood in line with everyone else got through security i wanted to, them to be grounded in reality in a reality that many many people understand so it was important to, to me to, to you know to travel in a way that many people that they could understand and, and 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 when we do travel it's it's we take the public transportation that's part of the experience i think it's important to understand different cultures and to be part of those cultures. And we've been fortunate enough. So my husband runs a nonprofit and he's been, he was co-founded it called World Reader that gets digital reading programs to keep kids learning. And he started in Ghana and Kenya. He's in all the libraries in Kenya. And we took our kids to some of his schools where, where he has this program. And I mean, it was wonderful for them to experience the classroom with these kids who were eager to learn I mean there's so much value placed on education there and they were so excited to see our girls and our girls were so excited to see them I mean they're looking at their peers and you know when we travel we've we've done a lot of traveling and when we were in China we, took the girls and we spent two weeks living in the dormitory and teaching English to kindergartners in a school there. And that was a wonderful experience. Again, our girls were seeing their peers, their you know kids like them in a different setting and, and, and sharing English with them. So we've really involved our kids in different cultures and, and, and in learning. And it is about, I think, using our are the advantages we have to open up their world and to teach them and to 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 learn about different people and different ways of being because there are there are many happy lives
0: and there's no rule book on how the wealthy live you know social media and television created this fantasy that maybe started with lifestyles of the rich and famous and somehow morphed into kardashians and influencers and and everything else and and you can see how many people Obviously, not you, not even close, get caught up, corrupted. And in the case of many of our leaders today, you know, become sociopathic or narcissistic to a point that, you know, you were able to avoid that and you drew the line at and you were able to come out the other side. And, you know, I, I think. That's so fascinating. And what you've done in the book is you told your story, but you also told the story of a number of other families. And I don't want to give too much away, but maybe you could share one or two stories that, that kind of are part of this common thread that you discovered while writing the book.
1: Hmm. Well, you know, I, I, I don't think wealth changes you as much as we think it does. I don't think it, it, it changes you. I think it, it instead reveals who you are. So it mm. makes you more of who like you are. That. So yeah, I, I for the book I interviewed eleven women, and you know when I thought about asking people to talk to me about wealth, it made me really nervous. It sure. you know even after writing this, I I thought, wow, I'm going to ask people to talk to me about money, and I had to push through my discomfort to send a couple of emails to some acquaintances, and the response was amazing. I mean, people wrote back right away, and they said, I think about these things all the time but i never discussed them and then when we got together it was so validating and to talk about our kids to talk about our parents to talk about feelings of isolation i mean we when we got together we realized how much we had in common and we could learn from each other and we weren't alone i think those conversations are so important and you know when you don't talk about something it tends to loom large and take on a life of its own and I think by talking, we can put money in its place, not as something bigger than us, but as a tool and a benefit. And you know, I can think of a story with a friend of mine who is middle class, told me that she and her husband had driven the same car for years. And when, when it finally, finally broke down, she bought an Audi Q5. And she'd always wanted that car. She loved the car. But when she thought about visiting her sister and driving up in the car, She was worried about being judged. In her mind, she heard her sister saying, oh, aren't we fancy, probably too good for us now. And then in her mind, she started to justify the car. You know, it wasn't that expensive. It was used, you know. Even before she saw her sister, she was making assumptions and telling herself stories. What if she'd actually talked to her sister? First. Yes. It's not easy i'm i I do think that this means that you know the norm is not to talk about these things, but I think it's so important for us to take that risk to be vulnerable because on the other side, you know you have a new connection, and when you connect in that way, it puts money in its place as a tool and a benefit. you know I could tell you another story about me and my brother, so you know this same thing is happening when And this was so my brother is two years younger and after college he he joined the Peace Corps and then he got a master's in Spanish and he became a Spanish high school teacher. And it was at this time he was he wanted to buy a house. Mm -hmm. And David and I offered him twenty thousand dollars towards the down payment, but he refused our gift. He said, I want to live within my own means. And this hurt my feelings. I felt like he was looking down at our money and that he, you know, I didn't say anything though. I just stayed quiet. And then a couple years later, when he was getting married, we sent a check as a wedding gift and he thanked us. And a couple years after that, when his first child was born, we again set, sent a check and he and his wife thanked us. And then we began writing checks every year. And over the course of several years, he just stopped acknowledging our gifts. We'd write a check in December and hear only silence. And it was like this money was disappearing into the void and I began to feel taken for granted. I was resentful, but I didn't say anything. Right. Instead, you know, I made assumptions and I told myself stories, you know, he, he probably thinks, Oh, we have so much money. It doesn't mean anything to us. And so just a couple of years ago, and I'm not proud to admit it, I just didn't send a check. And later in, the, in January, we were communicating over email. And at the end of one of his notes, he said, wondering if a certain year-end check is just laid in the mail, is it? And I read that and I was shocked and angry. And I'm like, okay, we have to talk. And again, this isn't easy. I had to really sit down and think about how I felt and what I wanted to say. And I set up a time and we talked on the phone and we got on the phone, I said, you know, my feelings are really hurt. You haven't really acknowledged our gifts. And he apologized right away. You know, he said he hadn't realized. He said he thought it was easier and more comfortable for me, for him not to make a big deal of the gift. And this made sense to me, given how we grew up. And, you know, it was such a relief to talk. And that conversation really brought us together. And and as two people who love and trust each other, when we're having that conversation and we feel connected, it really is so much easier to talk about money as just this tool that we have at our disposal, a benefit. And then he could say, I don't need this money, but I really appreciate it. And I could say for the first time, I'd never asked him, you know, I don't care what you do with the money, but I'm curious. I want to know. I want to be part of your life.
0: Hmm. That's Thank you for sharing that. That's That's really... That's really so special, and it just proves something. That my God, I, I've been part of so many conversations where families are not talking, and it's always about money. And it's because oh, we've advised so many families to have these conversations with their kids, their siblings, you know, right as early as they can. And in in our generation and and those before us, it's really really never it's just so it's just taboo and and it doesn't have to and the fact that you were able to have this conversation and i don't know you know if this is why you were doing it or went there but at least you know he may not be aware that everybody can gift a certain amount of money every year and there's a reason why specifically they do that and you know if they're going to choose where they're going to give that money family obviously is important and and it, he probably knew nothing about that. And I'm not saying that's that's what it was, but it's, that's just one of those things that, you know, I think we all experience, but we don't talk about. And I think what's so beautiful in, in, in tying this all up with what you've written in the book is really what you're doing now, how philanthropy is is so important. You know, there's 40 million Americans in poverty probably even more you recognize the privilege of being wealthy and and you know there needs to be systemic changes to redistribute wealth across food housing healthcare education i think that's probably what you know led your husband into the the nonprofit that you already mentioned world reader which i think is fascinating and i will also be linking to that on the show i want people to to hear more about that but in general I'm curious how you learned about philanthropy because philanthropy is is, is a big issue. I know with my clients and, and with our firm, we have a foundation at the firm and, and I've, I've just had a number of conversations with people in that world and have talked to people doing amazing things. Speaking of Ghana and Kenya, a guy who's pretty much helped cure blindness in Kenya, you know, he's kind of a global visionary. We call him, I had him on the show a few months ago and you know, I, I think that you're creating this world that to me, that's the utopia. That's the that's the beauty of it. So again, there might not be a guidebook for that. So how did you learn about it?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, just like we all have our money story that begins in childhood, I think we start to learn or not learn about giving when we're growing up and we watch our family and what they do. And for me, you know, my mom and I took peaches to the food drives and we took clothes to the goodwill but I never there was not a lot of charitable giving going on when I was growing up I didn't not something I really learned much about it wasn't until I got to Microsoft and I was surrounded by peers who were were giving and that's when I gave a certain percentage of my paycheck to the United Way Mm -hmm. and sort of the next step for me was was giving to places that had given to me. So I we gave to NPR. I gave to the nonprofit that organized my mother's group. Mm-hmm. And then I really did want to do more. I felt a responsibility and obligation, but I really wanted to step up and, and give back. And it can be overwhelming. It's uh, very quickly, I didn't know where to give. I didn't know what I was doing. It felt like I wanted to do it perfectly, I had to do a lot of research. So you can easily get into this place of overwhelm, and that certainly happened to me. And it takes time. I think giving is sort of an evolutionary process. You you start, you build that muscle, and you you get better at it. And and numbers that at first sounded like a lot, you know, you can give more. There, you you can do a lot more than you think you can. And it, and it's you know as much as our relationships bring us happiness. Giving brings us a lot of happiness too. And research shows us that, you know, if you have $20 that you spend on yourself is one thing. If you spend it on someone else, you're likely to feel a lot happier. So I guess, yeah, I guess I just say to people, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect and it doesn't have to be a job and a chore sitting in front of your computer doing the research you know you think is required to to do it right is not as important as looking into yourself and finding out where where are your values what do you care about where do you feel like you want to make a difference is there someone you know who's who's working on a problem that 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 you want to help solve. I mean, there are so many nonprofits doing such incredible work to help people. Give them your money to let them do the work that that they're doing because you're you're making it happen. So I think I I would challenge people to, you know, as Nike says, just do it. And also create a relationship with, you know, it's not like nonprofits are just these these kind of entities, they're people who've dedicated their lives to helping a certain cause, get to know them.
0: It is so rewarding. And, you know, I'm thinking of a few things here. First of all, I think the, the secret to life is pretty much in every Beatles song, even though I usually quote Bruce Springsteen mm-hmm. more often than that. But, you know, whether it's Can't Buy Me Love or Imagine, you know, and and, and, and the progress that John Lennon and, and McCartney took and in, in, in really as they began getting money put out there is so true. And I think another point that, that hits me when you talk about this is, you know, you're talking about it from the perspective of wealth. And my hero in my life was my grandfather who lived to be almost 97 years old. And he emigrated here when he was seven years old by himself on a boat from Russia, had two sisters who stayed in Russia. Whatever money he had was stolen on the boat. An uncle raised him. He didn't really go past seventh grade, learned to trade photography, and was just had such pride in everything he did And he basically ran out of money at 70. But, you know, he kept working. He always kept working. Mm. But he knew he wasn't a Rockefeller. It wasn't even close. But he he believed so much in philanthropy that he began collecting everybody's pennies. And I know today people pennies are not as big of a deal maybe as they were when he was doing this 25 years ago. And he would he would find all of these organizations that he felt strongly about. And he would send them other people's pennies. So, you know, you might have $2 or $3 or whatever. And actually, the New York Times approached, found out about it, wrote a story on him, called him the penny philanthropist. And when he passed away, wrote wrote that in his obituary. And I learned so much from observing that and it's showing that you don't have to have the massive wealth you could be middle class you could be whatever it is but there is no better feeling than giving and i think that's you know if there's anything there's so many things in your book but i mean that that is that is just such a such an important thing an important statement and and i know personally from being involved in nonprofits and things that that interest me for example music and i was in a on a board of a nonprofit that what that supplied musical instruments to schools that couldn't afford them after the No Child Left Behind laws and Little Kids Rock, which is the organization, and Teach Rock, which is now what Steve Van Zant runs. I mean, we've we've you know supplied millions of schools with with these instruments and and gave these kids, as we call it, the right to rock. But at least. It was something that I thought, because music's always been such a big part of my life and to be able to share that. So I have a couple of kind of lightning round questions to, to, to end with. I've never done this before, but I'm actually taking a couple right from your book because you, you pose so many, you, got, you really have me thinking. I, 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 you know, I don't usually finish a chapter and then sit and think as much as I was doing in your book, which I loved. So I'm gonna throw a couple right at you. So has there been a time that you would gladly have given all your money for a different outcome?
1: Well, it feels like right now I would like to for a certain outcome. Okay. I I <laughs> I think we agree yeah.
0: on that, but can't really get into it. Let's just put it that uh, way.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, I think as much as I want to start conversations at, you know, I think we all need to talk to each other and start with talking to people who are closest to us. I think that, that, and this may sound far reaching, but I think starting these conversations, I hope will really help fight income inequality. You know, our silence keeps the status quo in place. It doesn't get us to examine our relationship with money. It allows us to stay in our bubble and be unaware. And I think, you know, when there's a large and influential segment of our population, that feels isolated and estranged, they're not at their most generous and empathetic. And they're not necessarily holding themselves accountable or inspired to make change. And when I think about, you know, what I've done with my wealth, it's it's given me the time to write and to think. And right now, it's given me the privilege to try and get this message out that we need to start talking to each other to connect and to learn from each other. But on a bigger scale, we, we can collaborate. When we start talking, we can hold ourselves accountable. We can become more aware of our own privilege. And I hope that that translates into you know, a more equal and, and just society. Because right now, I'm not living in a society that feels good to me.
0: Not even close. How do you choose the priorities, though, on a planet that has so many problems. I mean, obviously we have more than we can even discuss just in our own backyard, but you know, when you look at everything, so why, why reading, for example, I guess I would use that as an example. So your Mm -hmm. husband chose to, to, to attack that. Was there something specific that had happened to him or, or that you guys felt so strongly about that led you in that direction?
1: Well, my husband's always been a big reader. And, you know, he, as a kid would walk down the street reading a book. And I think his people would call his mom and say, your son just walked by. I'm scared he's going to get hit by a car. He's he's (laughs) reading on his way to school. So reading has been a big part of his life. And, and mine as well. My mom was a librarian and, so we feel the importance of reading as a way not only to learn about ourselves, but to learn about other people. They, he says, you know, books are first a mirror and then a window. And, you know, education is a key to to kind of building a better life and having having more prosperity in your life. So he wanted to combine this love of reading and this importance of education with Technology, so World reader, for example, got you know it, he uses digital books and he and he works with local publishers and and authors to so that kids are reading about themselves they're not reading about American kids, but they're reading about Ghanaians or Kenyan kids, or he's in Jordan working with Syrian refugees and he he found books that are going to be relatable to those kids. So I think the answer to your question is education is incredibly important.
0: Right. It's interesting you mentioned that with with children's books. Two, uh, well, one is a cousin and one is a friend who happened to be his college roommate. My cousin, Judd Winnick, who actually lives in San Francisco, was actually on The Real World, San Francisco, the popular year. And he wound up marrying Pam, who was on the show, Who's a doctor. And, um, And Judd writes children's books and has had major, major success with his high-low superhero series. And his best friend is Brad Meltzer, who I just had on recently. And Brad, besides writing phenomenal bestsellers himself and and TV shows and History Channel, and he's, he's all over the place, he writes these wonderful books about his heroes. In fact, he has a book called I Am Ruth Ginsburg, as well as I Am Martin Luther King, that are these just beautiful, beautiful books and Guy Raz is doing the exact same thing, but he's doing it in an audio format with, with Where in the World. And it's just, if we don't start with kids, then we don't have a future. You spent, I think you said, a decade on this book, which is really, you know, shows how much, how much of your heart and soul you put into this. Did you enjoy the journey? What was kind of your biggest you takeaway? Know- from that.
1: Absolutely. if I hadn't enjoyed the journey, then that would be a little bit painful to imagine yeah. spending so much time. No, I you know, I, I talk to writers and they tell me, Oh, I have to set aside a certain time and I have to force myself to do this. Right. I basically opened my eyes in the morning and ran to, to the computer to write. This process was, was, I enjoyed this puzzle. You know, how was I going to write about my experiences in a way that were compelling? How was I going to tell a story that other people could find useful for their lives? How was I going to talk about money in a way that wasn't off-putting or offensive? So it was, it was something I grappled with. And I basically taught myself to write through this process. And it's very rewarding to finally have the book out in the world. I'm 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 thrilled that it's out there, and now I let the conversation begin.
0: Oh, and it's certainly beginning. I'm going to end with I usually end with one of Tim Ferriss's questions, and um, you know I always mention his name, and I credit Tim Ferriss with uh, uh, in his book Tribe of Mentors, with asking ten of I think the coolest questions in the world to a lot of different people. So I'm going to throw to at you that I think uh, fit here. What purchase of a hundred dollars or less? has most positively impacted your life in the last six months or recent memory?
1: Well, I'm going to change your hundred to a thousand because it it was a hundred in my, so, you know, my husband and I have now been married 25 years and Mm -hmm. we went out for dinner and we had a nice dinner. And at the end of the meal, I said, give her a good tip. And just because we had had a conversation with her, it's, you know, a restaurant, it's tough to be, it's, people are suffering right now. And I, in my mind, when I said that to him, I imagined him writing a hundred dollar tip. And he said, I gave a good tip and we were walking away. And he said, I gave a thousand dollars. And we, we had just gotten home and the woman was calling us saying, really, are you, I mean, it was the most wonderful feeling to have given her that money. And she was so appreciative and so happy. And that was the best thousand dollar anniversary gift I've ever received.
0: What a, what a beautiful thing to do. And I get that. And obviously we've had many of our meals delivered as well as the rare times that we've gone out. And I've made a very strong effort to leave usually two to three times what I would have ever left, because I, I can only imagine the struggles that these people have in just paying their bills, especially not even getting any more unemployment and, and, and uh, government funding. So um, that's, that's beautiful. Lastly, you are granted a magic wish. It's a billboard and you can leave any message for the world to see. What would it be and why?
1: Oh, I think you have to answer that question. That's a tough question. <laughs> there are so many things. It
0: is up. a really and I I, I I ask this every show and it is it is a very difficult question. And it is something you can just say I'd like to think about. It's fine. Because well, there, I, I there are many messages say, we'd like to I mean there's one there's, message I think we agree on that we won't say, but there's are other there are other things too, I think.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think maybe it's take the risk and talk to someone about money, but also, you know, when I think about taking risks, I mean, this, people say I'm brave to write this and I do feel it takes a, a little bit of courage. Maybe the billboard should say, you know, what would you do if you weren't scared of making mistakes to get people to take the risk, to follow that riskier path? I think we all have it within us and we should trust ourselves and, and and be our best selves and be our biggest selves as as much as we can be
0: mm-hmm. taking a risk that's right up there with with part of the secret of life in, in many many ways so that's a that's a beautiful sentiment. The book folks, is called "We Need to Talk, a memoir about i don't know why I'm, this is, we're doing this on video and I, I mean audio, and I'm holding up the book, but it's just I like a natural it's you. a natural thing well I, I I enjoy having it it's a memoir about wealth. I'm going to do, you know, and our guest, Jennifer Risher, we're going to link on our show page to the book available everywhere. I just want to read you a quick blurb that Scott Cook, who's the co-founder of Intuit and member of the Giving Pledge, wrote, because I think it kind of describes it all. An enlightening, deeply personal story written with introspection and grace. We Need to Talk explores how financial success impacts friendships, children, charity, and family and i will agree with him when i say everyone you need to read this book it's the reason it took you 10 years it's really special and thank you so much for for sharing your time and sharing this book that you know clearly you poured your heart and your soul and a lot of a word that we hear a lot about but we don't see enough in the world today and that's empathy and i was i was truly blown away by it so so thank you for for having this out there And thank you for being on the show today and thank everybody listening for subscribing on Spotify. I want to thank the folks at resonate recording for all of their fantastic production work. And as I say every week, and somehow this week, it it kind of rings possibly truer in some ways and maybe not than others. But one of the things that I say every week on the show is something I've said to clients for years is that when it comes to saving for your future, pay yourself first, which the point there is when you pay your bills, make sure you're beginning to save for your own future. And I may need to change that to pay somebody else because, and I don't mean the, the the electric bill, because at the end of the day, like you said, giving is better than anything. So have a great week. And thank you very much for joining us, Jennifer Risher on Financially Speaking.
1: Thank you so much, Mitch. Great to be here.